Imagine you're a young medical doctor surrounded by sick and dying patients when you experience a panic attack due to an overwhelming sense of disillusionment that the Western medical model and its over-reliance on pharmaceutical treatments is not the way to nurture humans back to health. In this episode of Human Cogs, we chat with Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, a GP and global expert in integrative mind, body and nutritional medicine, who upholds a philosophy of health that values the whole spectrum of a person's life, emotional, physical, psychological and environmental. In this conversation, Michelle shares her learnings on the role that cultural reward plays in our current anxiety and stress pandemic, how social media contributes to our empty pursuit of the holy grail of happiness and why empathy without self-compassion is unsustainable. The potency of Michelle's message lies in the combination of her personal experience and holistic medical approach, which she has used to teach countless others how to heal emotionally and physically by attuning to the powerful feedback we each receive from our hearts, our minds, and our guts. Here's Michelle. Michelle, you're a medical doctor and a global expert in nutritional and mind-body medicine, and you uphold a philosophy of health that addresses the whole spectrum of a person's life, the emotional, physical, mental, and environmental. What's the sort of story that took you on the journey to this holistic medical approach? Wow. I mean, it was quite quite a journey. I mean, medical school is quite a difficult place to be, and I guess I found myself in towards the end of that medical degree really questioning health and wellness and I I found myself actually quite filled with anxiety. Um, Medical school is often about the way they present diseases like there's a Russian roulette sort of aspect to it. You know, you kind of just get this disease and even though they mention things like nutrition and, you know, psychological factors, they're often really underplayed and so I often felt that I kind of developed a bit of a hypochondriasis, you know, in some ways just thinking every little gripe or pain or fleeting kind of lymph node swelling was either cancer or MS or some sort of psychiatric um, condition depending upon what rotation that I was in. Then going on into becoming a junior doctor, you know, and just being faced with so much in the way of, you know, life stresses and, you know, really being thrown in the deep end of watching people, you know, pass away, some, some of them really you know, young and tragic sort of circumstances. I guess I experienced really what you call a, a breakdown, panic attacks and anxiety and that kind of stuff. And I actually didn't know what was going on for me. So that kind of led me really to my own explorations of, of health in some ways. And I landed after a couple of years at this conference called the Holistic Health Conference, which was down in Lawn. And, you know, the first time in my life, it was a whole bunch of doctors that were really talking about lifestyle medicine and nutritional medicine and, and mind-body medicine as a kind of an adjunct to people's invitation to health and well-being, and it literally blew my mind. And so that after that weekend, I radically shifted my diet because uh, I was, you know, like lots of people when they're 21, probably drinking too much, you know, too much coffee, too much processed foods, too much sugar, and ended up kind of, you know, really having a very personal relationship to what food and mood can do, but also then the introduction of, of things like meditation or tai chi or yoga. 
and then kind of hit it off from there. It sounds like, Michelle, you were really disillusioned after your experiences at, at med school. But what was it, I want to take you back before we move forward, that drew you to medicine in the first place? What was your hope by being a part yeah. of that industry? I was talking about this with my girls the other the other night. But, I mean, there was a really strong desire to help people. You know, I think like lots of, I was a fairly idealistic young medical student and I still have a strong, strong passion for people and for story and for supporting people. But in, in many ways, I thought medical school was kind of the pinnacle of, of helping people. But I was quite disillusioned by the emphasis on the pharmaceutical medications, I guess, and really found, you know, in the first couple of years of my junior medicine was actually a lot of prescribing of pharmaceuticals and not very much in the way of myself as the therapist, you know, being really kind of engaged. And I think some of the skills that I picked up after I finished medical school about teaching people breathing exercises and and really supporting them through a counselling and presence kind of process, that really, I think, gave me, I guess, the personal satisfaction that I was looking for as I was entering into medical school. What do you think then accounts for the over-medicalisation of health in Western society? Well, I think there's a lot of time pressure on doctors and so it's much easier to prescribe something than it is to take the time to engage in true preventative medicine, which is often lifestyle medicine. So most of, most of the chronic diseases that Westerners face have got an underpinning of lifestyle factors that influence their development. Really, the best treatment for lifestyle diseases is lifestyle. But changing someone's lifestyle is actually really difficult to do. You know, the person needs to have a lot of education, a lot of motivation and a lot of social support in which to kind of change some of these, you know, habitual patterns. And so it is a lot easier to actually use medication rather than look at engaging and changing behaviour. And yet nothing changes. That's a Band-Aid approach, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, you know, there's nothing, I always say to patients, there's nothing wrong with Band-Aids, but we want to work on using Band-Aids in addition to other things. So there's nothing wrong with covering something up and making someone feel better temporarily. But really, if you really want, if that keeps going on and on and on, like if a child keeps falling over and over and over, you know, you really need to look at either their coordination or what they're doing, you know, that causes them to keep falling over and over and over. And there's lots of different avenues that we can kind of, go down to do that but what I think I realized back in those early days of medical school was just how much I was fascinated by the psychology of medicine and and what leads people to some people to really get better through their own psychology and other people not to and I guess that's been really formative in my chosen kind of career path. Mm. Michelle you've talked quite a lot about in looking at health in that holistic way um, that part of that is well, not Band-Aids, but actually going back and acknowledging the primitive parts of our human dictates and behaviour and, you know, the lizard parts of our brain and how that plays into science, physiology, energy, the body. Can you explain a bit about the work you've done around going back into understanding uh, humans at that really kind of primitive level? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is, it's been so informative for me to understand, you know, patient's behaviour and what 
make people tick and, and also myself, you know, through my own anxiety, learning about my own physiology, my own biology. It's such an important factor to understand. So one of the, the biggest things that has been affecting Westerners over the last, let, let's say, 50, 70 years, for example, they started to scale off in the 1950s and found that every decade was getting more and more stressful. So it's called the, the stress index um, by a couple of famous psychiatrists back in the 50s. And, you know, that's despite, as we know, you know, modern day technology and all of these fantastic things that we've got in our lives, we tend to get more, we're getting more and more stressed. And Australians are working, you know, longer than pretty much any other kind of nation across the, across the planet. And, you know, our stress response for chronic stress is actually incredibly informative through our neurochemistry, but also our neurohormones. It's the way that the body shifts from physical stress. So stress response is actually when we feel unsafe and threatened and the body prepares to defend itself. So it's actually a safety and security response. So is this, fi- is this fight or flight? Are we going Yeah, that? it's fight or flight. And there's another component that over the last decade has come in through freeze response, which is actually a more primitive response. So if we just take fight or flight, the chemicals that are responsible for that have impacts the whole body, both neurologically, biologically and nutritionally as well. So, for example, there's a lot of information about stress response in the digestive system. So we've heard about the gut-brain reflex. The stress is hugely impactional over the digestive health. In fact, I remember one of the earlier studies where they, they zapped rat tails and found that the whole digestive system froze for six hours, just froze. And so what would then happen after that six hours, the neurological system would feel safe again and the digestive system would then start moving again. And that is very much akin to the typical IBS symptoms, the irritable bowel symptoms of the kind of chronic uh, diarrhea slash loose stools with constipation and then on it goes from there. And then learning about the impact of the digestive system, you can have a look at sugar dysregulation too. So with under chronic stress, we tend to dysregulate our sugar levels. And so that can lead to sugar cravings, cigarette cravings, alcohol cravings, which then lead to poor stress, um, poor sleep, for example. But it also impacts upon putting on weight around that middle bit. Because as we dysregulate our sugars, we get a rise in the hormone insulin. And that insulin will then start to pile on kind of belly fat. And so, you know, chronic stress can actually lead to increase in belly fat. And lots of people like to find that out because they start to get quite motivated <laughs> about probably one of the most motivating factors of dealing with your stress when you realize that it can impact that area of, of the body. What do you think gets in the way of people exploring ways that they can manage these challenges because I think some of this information will be new to some listeners but a lot of it's familiar and yet it's not changing the way we live and behave. Yeah it's a great question actually and I kind of ponder this all the time but I think there's a lot of external cultural reward in stress like we really revere people that work really hard. We say I'm so busy. I'm so busy. How are you? I'm busy, busy. Oh, that's fantastic. Good on you. You know, what are you up to? And, oh, you know, I can't sleep. And, oh, why? You know, like there's a there's a real kind of sense of pride that we put in by how much we persevere and we strive. 
And I think culturally we've actually really, without too much attention to it, have lost our leisure time. Yeah. And that, that's a real problem because leisure time allows us real reflection. We can reflect on our choices and, you know, we can just sort of linger a little bit and actually have a very, I guess, restful and rejuvenation time. So the opposite of the, the stress and the attack time is the kind of tend and befriend time. So having time to actually tend to ourselves and befriend ourselves and making sure that we're making choices that are actually part of, of how we want to live our life. Mm. Michelle, you talked when we were speaking recently about this whole idea of befriending yourself and finding a way back into loving yourself. What is the thing that you do in front of the mirror every day? <laughs> a little exercise that I started doing a couple of months ago that I got from this beautiful book by Dr. Kristen Neff, who is a researcher in self-compassion from America. It's a fantastic book that I highly recommend. But one of her exercises that she does is every day to look yourself in the eye in the mirror and to tell yourself that you love yourself. And it's still funny because I, I smile every time I do it, just about the awkwardness and the discomfort that occurred when I first started to do this. And one of the key things about self-compassion is actually putting yourself into the mix of care. Women in particular, because of our biological drives, uh, and our cultural sort of drives really revered for our ability to show compassion and empathy to others. Yet we'll often fail to show empathy and compassion to ourselves. And it's the critical thing, like I was reading the other night, about a book, Empathy Without Compassion. And compassion is really about putting yourself into the mix. Empathy without compassion is unsustainable. And self-compassion allows us to sustain ourselves so that we can truly be empathic. And so I've started to, to do, to really start putting myself into my own self-care. So this isn't, this isn't self-care by just getting a haircut or, you know, having a massage or going for a stroll on the beach. Genuinely really acknowledging my challenges and my difficulties and my sensitivities and my vulnerabilities and acknowledging that everybody has that. You know, we'll often assume particularly with our modern-day culture, that other people have got it all together. And I can tell you, being a GP, there isn't anybody that doesn't have deep human suffering. It's part of the journey and it's, and it's an essential part of our journey. Mm. And once we start to truly recognise that, we can actually then start to be very sensitive to our own need for compassion. And, and it really has been one of the most transformational experiences and it becomes after that clunkiness and that awkwardness, the ease that comes through just perhaps maybe putting my hand on my heart if the mirror isn't around and just really acknowledging myself and some of my difficulties that I might be experiencing that particular day or that particular week uh, has been quite transformational in terms of my mental health. Mm. Sabina's got her hand on her heart at the moment. Great. So well, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm listening with two hats and one is that of a health professional who's in the, in the business of caring for the needs of others myself as a psychologist and thinking about, I mean, I've read a lot of Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. I think it's wonderful. But just that you've said something so simply that I just got my yellow highlighter out and those of... Those people who know me know when I get my highlighter out, it means something is resonating deeply. And you just said empathy without self-compassion is not 
sustainable. And I don't think you need to be a mental health professional or in the caring profession for that sentence to really resonate deeply because in some ways we're trying to be empathetic, particularly maybe women more so than men, but anyway, it's not it's not a gender story. We're so drawn to being empathetic about others that we totally overlook ourselves in the mix. Yeah, and give ourselves away to our detriment so there's nothing left for ourselves to give. And maybe that's standing and seeing yourself in the mirror and acknowledging, as you say, Michelle, you know, we are part of that pie that we create of, of love or care or compassion or empathy that we have available and there is a finite amount of that really mm. uh, in the context of our busy lives. I was just going to say it was kind of, it's kind of the ultimate me too sort of movement, like hashtag me too, but it's actually just putting yourself into the mix of the care that we are all worthy of. Mm. And, and we know that. I just want to bring this home for, for listeners and for myself because, you know, we've all been told put your own oxygen mask on before you've placed them on someone yeah. else. And we've heard this a million times. What is getting in the way of us putting ourselves in the mix? Oh, I mean, it's a million-dollar question really and I think it's unique to all of us. But I think we have to start the conversation about shame and the, the shutting down of ourselves to the detriment of ourselves. And, you know, one of the things that fascinates me, bringing back to that kind of question in this series of the, the biological aspects of ourselves, like we have biologically, we have innate emotions that are very, very helpful for our survival, but not necessarily for our thriving. Mm-hmm. And so our innate kind of emotions are things like, you know, anxiety, anger, uh, disgust, sadness, joy, but shame is a big one as well. So keeping ourselves small keeps ourselves safe, but it also limits our ability to actually really dive into our deep human aliveness. And it comes down to kind of meaning and purpose. But I think, you know, the other thing we mentioned through this podcast is our lack of time and our almost addictive nature of filling that time with things that are not necessarily meaningful. And I think we have to be really disciplined and courageous about standing up and kind of demanding our aliveness back into our lives. And changing the, we need a paradigm shift here around the, around the cultural reward that, yeah, as you absolutely. say, stress gives us. Imagine the cultural yeah. rewards of filling up our own cups, of, of talking to ourselves in the mirror, of creating a space where there is nothing to do but be. Mm. We, we need we need rewards for those on mm. a social, on an individual and on a collective level. This yeah. raises, I guess, um, the issue of anxiety, Michelle, and it is at pandemic proportions in our in our pandemic. society. Mm. Why do you think it's so common now for people to experience anxiety at its varying levels? Uh, it's, I think it's a it, again, it's a really good question to ask, and I think there's a lot of ways that we can respond to that, and I think it's multifactorial. There's certainly cultural issues in terms of, you know, the, the social media pressures, particularly on, on women and young girls. And so women have a preponderance of anxiety compared to men. They just express it differently. And biologically, they are the, the less strong of the sexes in terms of our biology. And so the way that we increase our strength and power is through our relationships and our friendships so much so that when we lose 
a friendship or a relationship, it's probably one of the greatest sources of anxiety and stress that a female body will experience. I think relationships and social media relationships do tend to impact our ability to truly relate and attune ourselves to other people and we're impacted in that way. We can Mm. also look at the environment of high work pressures and stresses and lack of kind of time for each other, lack of time for that deep connection to occur. And then we can look at physical factors like lack of sleep because of excessive screen times or excessive electromagnetic radiation can impact that, too much light and noise and distraction. But also then you can look at dietary factors such as excessive sugars and caffeine, alcohol for the older cohort. And, you know, you put all of those things together and mix that in with high levels of self-criticism and and comparison and not enough time for proper body awareness and connection to the self and Mm. connection to our own lives. It's a recipe for anxiety. That, that's right. And living through the knowledge age, and we all have knowledge at our fingertips, um, but actually managing the amount of that that we're letting in and then synthesising, making sense of it, making sense of the world ourselves. Social media yeah. is this constant onslaught and, um, and it's so yeah. difficult to, you know, it is addictive. We know that during COVID that's all been exacerbated for so many people. So it's so difficult to really put that stop point around how much you will consume. Mm. Michelle, I wanted to tap into something that you've mentioned around the culture we're in and sort of that contextual, the role that context plays. And you've you've talked in the past about a cultural lie that we've been sold about happiness and contentment and that there is no human suffering. Can you build on that a bit in terms of how that relates to the anxieties we carry about not living our best lives? Yeah, well, I think I think the beautiful aspect of that kind of self-compassion is, is the recognition that we all will suffer. And, you know, I know I remember my mum, kind of who's more of a sort of 1940s, 1950s baby, would often say to me growing up, you know, life's hard, Michelle, you know, like life life isn't easy. Whereas I think we've really slipped in with that and we've got a different kind of mindset through at least the last 10, 20 years of that we're deserving of happiness, we're deserving of, of luxury, we're deserving of all of these external kind of factors within our life. I mean, you look at any car ad, you look at a Magnum ad, you look at the way that we discuss kind of sensual foods or a watch, you know, or a suit, that kind of thing. Like we, we deserve that because we've worked hard. And so we've created a, a marketing and advertising kind of culture that says that we're entitled. We're entitled to uh, happiness. Mm. And in fact, happiness is not necessarily an entitlement. It's part of the biologic, you know, our biology. Like so we're biologically driven for joy. As much as we're driven for anxiety mm-hmm. and sadness and anger, and learning to manage our emotions is actually part of our our lives. It, emotions are there to support us and to guide us. And so, as we lose time and body awareness, we're actually losing our ability to tune into ourselves. And if we can tune into ourselves and learn to self-regulate our emotions ourselves, then we can actually have more choices in life to gear us towards more enjoyment and the things that truly make us happy. But the lack of time and the cultural sense of entitlement, I think, is killing our ability to do that. Mm, That's an essential stoic tenet, what you're talking about, that you should always 
Well, ultimately, we're doing the inverse of what we should be doing, which is to picture the worst that can happen and then remind ourselves that the worst is survivable. So the goal is Mm. not to sort of imagine that life should be this enormous utopia, but that actually bad things will unfold and that we'll be far stronger than we think when we, you know, we are confronted with those. And I don't even like the use of language, good or bad, because that that brings sort of a loaded judgment. Or challenging things, Painful things happen, uncomfortable things happen. And I talk a lot about tolerance and how can we tolerate these feelings that are difficult because, as Mm. you say, Michelle, we need to welcome them. They're as fitting and as as human as any of the so-called feel-good emotions that Mm. we experience. And I think one of the other things that is really that I've really witnessed over the last 10 or 20 years is, is a lack of trust. Mm. Uh, and I think with the excessive amount of knowledge that we have, Matt, you said, you know, we've got this knowledge age, you know, so we are just flooded with information. And we're lacking the time and perhaps maybe the expertise to actually decipher and interpret the information. And so we need to kind of create almost an embodiment of the knowledge and using the body through trust and safety to actually define the knowledge for ourselves, you know, the information for ourselves to make it personal and meaningful to ourselves. And I think trust is at an all-time low. And I think that if we could get into the schools and work on trust through body awareness would be a really incredibly beautiful thing um, to do for the younger generation particularly now we've got COVID-19. Yes as I'm listening to you talk Michelle I don't want the focus to be on the bottom of the cliff where the ambulance falls but something more Mm. preventative in in what we can do. As parents who, who may be listening what do you think we can do to help some of I get to, to help highlight some of the important shifts that you're talking about. So how do we minimise this idea of materialism? How do we place an importance on dietary choices? How do we uh, minimise the use of social media when we know that for so many young people it's a lifeline? Yeah, I think, I mean, it always starts with, with yourself, you know, as, as parents. I mean, we're such incredible role models, you know, for our children and I think learning to deal with our own discomfort and, and to bring in some of these skill sets is actually really challenging to do. So a lot of what we've spoken about today is actually changing brain plasticity. So lots of, you know, over the last 20 years or whatever, we've found that the nervous system can adapt and can change, but it can adapt for kind of good and it can adapt for negative, you know, as in like it can be unhelpful ad- adaptation or helpful adaptation. And it's a slow process, so we have to actually trust the process that we're learning. We have to trust our own discomfort and we have to kind of almost follow a lot of the research in terms of mindfulness skills and body awareness skills and emotional regulation skills over a period of time. And once we start to learn to regulate our own emotions and attune to other people, whether it be a partner or our children, then I think that we can start to then get a depth in them to, for them to understand that sitting with discomfort and learning to regulate our emotions is actually a really important part of the human journey. And I think, you know, going back to kind of nutritional aspects, I mean, I think knowledge and having the knowledge is a really powerful aspect and being really encouraging to your social circle can be really helpful as well. So coming in with your sort of 
fructose-free special cakes at the at birthday parties or you know abundances of salads or whatever if you have the knowledge and it can really infiltrate friendship groups really quickly and so you know then your children are brought up in this kind of social circumstance where people are all eating really well and that we don't actually have this idea that processed foods are normal foods you know celebratory celebratory yeah yeah they're not they're not normal foods you know so Mm. we've got to get back to nature and the principles of nature of eating food that is from the earth and not using food so much as rewards particularly for good behavior yeah absolutely and well and fast food you know has has obviously proliferated because of our fast lives and so part of that is then recalibrating our lives so they are slower and we have time to think about our nutrition and cook foods and share share our family moments around meals that have had slow time. Mm. Um, Michelle, you, you've talked about this idea of the body and allowing the body to allow us to almost gain information from the environment around us and this idea of the sort of felt sense of the body. Can you explain a bit more about that and how it relates to our mammalian responses? Yeah, so it's, it's I mean, I think this is absolutely critical to know our whole nervous system is geared towards gathering information from the outside world. And that's called the, the, the vagus nerve, which is the longest nerve in the body. And it basically innovates from uh, the torso all the way up into the brain. So all the time we're gathering information through our skin, through our muscles, and through our vagus nerve. So all of the tones of the internal organs and our face and our heart. And so we're gathering, 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 gathering information. So in our body, we have enormous amounts of fodder for true information of how we actually feel and how we're responding to the environment. Like, you know, sometimes we don't, you know, we get to a decision in our life where we're stuck with an intellectual choice, you know. And so as we start to develop the skills of attuning ourselves to our body, we can then gather information from our cellular knowledge to help to inform our intellect and it's the great beautiful combination between intellect and body wisdom and it's when we start to combine intellect with body wisdom we start to be able to then create our own autonomy so we might go against the flow a key kind of example is like you know you've got a a very smart child and they want to be an actor but they've got the marks to do law you know, and every parent, you know, the parents are saying, you should do law and just and then do your acting, you know, make sure, you know, all of those kind of conservative recommendations that are, I guess, common, you know, in the parental-child relationships. And with really good felt sense and really good attunement to the body, you know, a person can then go, no, I actually feel like my my heart is actually taking me in a different direction and really trusting, you know, the, the body and going in the direction that the body wisdom allows you to go. Which a lot of young children innately and intuitively experience and then I think we knock that out of them over the years. So it's, a, it's important that we get back and invite them to go back to what they knew and felt before they were told otherwise. Is, is, it, heart, yeah. is it heart or gut? I mean, when we talk about these instinctive things. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a really good point actually because you know, us Westerners, we like to kind of break everything down. You know, is, it, is, is the gut the most important? Is the brain the most important? Is the heart the most important? You know, and so actually this is a concept that I've just been exploring over the last sort of six months or so, that, and there's a, an amazing project called the Connect Dome Project. And they're looking at 
the whole neurological system connecting to every single cell within the body, and they're calling this the connectome. So it's a little bit like the gut biome equivalent. So, you know, we've heard about the gut and the, the whole biome is the combination of the bacteria and the whole chemical sort of soup that that lives within. And so the connectome and the flow and the effective, I guess, information flow of the connectome has shown to be the greatest source of human well-being. And so I think, you know, going back to kind of gut, heart, like I think that's a really Western concept to think, is it the gut, is it the heart? And I think we've got to start to, to develop to our core holistic principles, which is like nothing is nothing is the boss. It's, it's actually the whole yes. being, which is the important thing. It's the, it's the connection of everything yes. that becomes the really empowered um, being that we mm. all have the potential to be. That resonates very loudly for me, that it's an artificial delineation to think that one is louder or more important than the other. What is yes. one takeaway, practical, tangible tip that you have, Michelle, on how we can tap into that body wisdom and felt sense in order to to live the lives that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I think if I could give any tip, it would be to respect the breath because the breath is the doorway to the wisdom that we all have. And I think we belittle the breath. You know, a lot of, you know, as you know, Sabine, the psychologists will often lead with breathing exercises, but they're very commonly dismissed as too simple, too easy, too too cheap. Yes. <laughs> and yet they have the most profound influence if we can continually back ourselves by breathing in the present moment and allowing ourselves to feel what is there. And the, the breath is really the uh, it's it's the bomb. <laughs> it's the bomb. The breath is the bomb. The, bomb. the breath is yeah. the bomb. But when we really, really feel what is there, often we don't know what to do with it and it's overwhelming. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons we overlook the breath. Yeah, and that's where we've got to get a little bit of trust, mm. trust in what's there. And trust mm. in what uh, in what comes up when we breathe deeply to the bottom of our diaphragm or our heart. Yeah. And trust in our own resilience to be yeah. able to cope with it. Yeah. Because we're much more resilient than we think we are. As the Stoics said. <laughs> um, <laughs> Michelle, you uh, run, and particularly during COVID, some virtual or online anxiety group retreats. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so I started in March when COVID hit and they've um, I've absolutely loved doing it. So we call it a, a shared medical appointment where we have um, a group of, of 10 or 15 people coming together I guess with the underlying sort of um, desire to really learn about anxiety and emotional regulation and it's a one hour a week Zoom uh, call and um, we always, you know, there's there's no set fast rules like if you don't feel like you want to put your video on, you don't have to. But I take, you, I take all the participants through, I guess, the biological and physiological aspects of, of stress and anxiety and teach you practical exercises but also the reasons why we do the practical exercises to kind of really help to support the motivation to really own the techniques that I'm teaching throughout the course. And we will put details in our show notes and relevant links to, to this episode because I know there'll be a lot of people that that will really appeal to. It's pretty low barriers to entry to be able to do yeah. something like that through telehealth if you like or on Zoom and in a group. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I love, and I absolutely, I love 
delivering the course and I think everybody can kind of feel my my passion through my own personal experience yes. and also it's been really hugely beneficial for some of the participants um, really being able to kind of give them huge amounts of skills to, to take on and, and run with. Yeah, I bet it has and we'll look forward to um, sharing more of that. We like to finish these chats, Michelle, acknowledging the complexities of human life and as you've talked about today, living as a whole human with all these parts of us connected and honouring each other. Who do you think is doing human well? <laughs> Apart from you two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you. Yeah. And me, us three. Apart from yeah. the three of us because we've certainly nailed it, no doubt. There's been no scientific study done on that and um, but there's no control group, but, yes, us three. Who is doing human well? Look, to be honest, I think the way to answer that is I think we're all doing pretty well. You know, COVID-19 has been one of the greatest kind of issues that we've faced as a, as a community. And I, I am absolutely in awe of how much we've all rallied together. You know, I think particularly in my team at Whole Medicine, but also just, you know, watching people, they're so respectful of life in general. They're so respectful of each other. And I actually have to say, human beings individually are doing incredibly well at the moment. That's a beautiful, that is a beautiful and positive and uplifting note to end it on because if human beings are doing well individually, then that that hopefully creates um, great potential for us as a collective and that's what we all need to, to look forward to at this juncture in our lives. So thank you, Michelle. It's a beautiful reflection and we've loved talking to you today. Lots of tangible practical tips but some really personal insights there too and I think your power comes from the lived experience with, together with the, the deep expertise. And I promise tomorrow morning I will stand in front of the mirror and look deeply into my own empathic heart and tell myself <laughs> I love myself even my gut fat. And I, <laughs> I, I promise to really think about empathy without self-compassion is not being sustainable. That's my big takeaway. Oh, thanks for having me on your show, guys. It's fantastic and I've loved having a chat. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 